<laughs> Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Let's see. Um, we're going to be in the book of Matthew this morning. If you want to turn to chapter 24. Everybody knows about our preaching at Miracle Hill. We've been going through Mark um, since, what, like last January or something? It's been a while. It's been quite a while. Um, and uh, in our preaching at Miracle Hill, we've, uh, we've been going through the Olivet Discourse. So Jesus, if you don't know that terminology, that's when Jesus has this very extended portion of teaching in all three Gospels. It's the shortest in Luke, but it's the longest in Matthew, where he talks about um, the end, <laughs> the end of a couple of things, the end of the temple and uh, Jerusalem as a city, uh, because Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. He also talks about his, his coming, the end of all things. Um, it's not a particularly easy passage to understand in many ways. I think you'll testify to that, Dylan, and anyone else who's preached um, or looked at uh, the, you know, the text in any detail. Um, the minute you think you've got something sorted out, another gospel kind of kind of messes with your interpretation. Like, wait a minute, how can that fit with that other thing? So it's sort of a puzzle. But um, that being said, when Jesus shifts to a discussion of his second coming, kind of moves away from uh, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and just shifts to, str- to strictly talking about his coming, things get much easier to grasp, but also much more personally challenging. So it's not so much that there are all these major questions hanging over interpretation. It's more about, okay, now how do I do this? <laughs> how do I live this out? Um, and it's sort of unfortunate as I thought about um, the Olivet Discourse and the whole passage in the Gospels, how there's all this controversy over interpretation, and some of it rightly so, because it is a perplexing passage, definitely. But we sort of missed the overarching point of the second coming and the fact that Jesus teaches on it in an extended way at the end, and it's very clear. And we don't have to be in debate as a church. I mean, the church, the whole church, across the world and across time, as to what Jesus means and what it means for our lives. Um, those are things that we can all um, come to terms with. Um, so Jesus, um, he brings up his second coming early on in the text. Well, actually, his disciples bring it up in Matthew chapter 24. So if you'll just look at um, the first few verses. Um, the setting is Jesus leaves the temple. He tells the disciples that as they're marveling and ooing and aahing over the temple, and rightly so because it was an amazing building, it was what was considered at the time one of the wonders of the ancient world. Um, it was, I won't go into all the details of it, but a really astonishing structure. You can go online and look if you want to see some reconstructions and diagrams or drawings and so forth, models. Um, but um, the disciples comment to Jesus about the the massive nature and the, you know, the impressive nature of the structure of the building. And he says to them, uh, this is Matthew 24, verse 2, Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn, torn down. So I think most of us are familiar with the history of this, but just to lay it out for you, that's exactly what happened, A.D. 70. The Roman army, arm, army under the general Titus comes in and they just obliterate the city. Uh, they level the temple pretty much completely. Now there are, there are some stones left, they're um, massive, in fact, stones, um, but totally, just totally destroyed. So Jesus was exactly, exactly right, of course. Um, now the liberal scholars make a heyday with this and try to get around it, but nonetheless, Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple, and that's exa- exactly what happened. But his disciples, they hear this, and they think, hmm, we need to ask some questions about this. We have some more thoughts on the matters. Jesus, we need some answers. So they come to him privately as they're sitting on the Mount of Olives looking down onto where the temple would be. And 
they say to Jesus, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So in their minds, the disciples, you know, Jesus had predicted the complete destruction of the temple, uh, as we just read, and the disciples assume that this must also be the end of everything. This must be the end of the world. They conflate, in their minds, the coming of, well, the destruction of the temple and the coming of Jesus together. This becomes very apparent. It's explicit in Matthew 24. In Mark 13, it's a little bit more um, implied. So Matthew seems to bring out what was implied in their question when they ask about the uh, coming of Jesus and the end of the age. Um, But nonetheless, um, Jesus is concerned throughout the passage to separate the two events in their minds as he addresses the questions that they they ask. They ask about the temple, they ask about his coming, they assume apparently that it's all together, one event that destroys the temple and brings the end of all things, Jesus coming, and Jesus has to tell them no, no. Um, Concerning the temple, they can look to the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. I'm gonna kind of summarize here, I'm not gonna argue this in depth because this is not our main, kind of getting into the text we're gonna look at, but he, uh, he tells them, yes, you can look to events leading up to the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, namely the Roman army surrounding the city. So um, Matthew says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be. Mark says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And then Luke makes it more explicit and says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. So um, apparently what Jesus is saying is, this is your last chance of escape because he tells his disciples and all those who would hear his teaching afterward that if they're going to escape the city, escape destruction, they must flee before this army completely surrounds and cuts off uh, any way in or out of the city. That's the nature of a siege, right? That's what, that's what they did. They would cut off all coming and going, basically, and cut off uh, supplies, and that's the main thing, to starve people out, um, and that's exactly what occurred. Uh, I won't go into the gruesome details of the, of the siege. If you want to read about it, Josephus goes into it, and you can read summaries online. It was truly horrific in many ways. Um, so Jesus gives them this, this, this sign, if, it, if you will, this, this thing to look for, uh, Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, um, and that will be the final chance of escape, so they must flee the city and flee the temple complex. But concerning his coming and the end of the age, they get no such sign. Um, There is no sign leading up. There's no clear sign that can be used to nail down Jesus' coming, even though, as we know quite well, many have tried, right? Many have tried up to this day. We hear it all the time. Sometimes it's loony fanatics, you know, kind of cult-like personalities saying, oh yeah, Jesus is going to come back on this day at this time. He's going to be wearing a white robe, yada, yada, yada. And then other times it's people we would usually respect or consider to be brothers and sisters in the, or sisters in the Lord who um, go beyond what is written and try to nail down days and times, even though Jesus says specifically, you can't do that, <laughs> um, which is what we're going to look at in just a moment. So in light of this fact, Jesus instructs his disciples and us of the proper attitude we should adopt as those caught in the middle of his two comings. You know, that's how we need to think about it. We are here stuck in the, stuck is maybe not the right word, that's kind of negative, but we're, we're here, we're living in the midst of, in the tension of two ages. We're not looking for his first coming, obviously, but we're not where we want to be yet. We're not in the new creation, right? So we're waiting for his second coming. We're in the, caught in the two ages. Um, as Paul calls it, we live in this present evil age, right? It's, it's a present evil age. That's what, that's what we live in. And we have to 
own it as such. You know, we can't sugarcoat it. We can't see the world through rose-colored glasses. I don't think we're trying to. It's pretty obvious that's an impossibility. But nonetheless, as Christians, we can sort of um, get tired of, of the present evil age very quickly, right? We ought, and we ought to. It's a hard age. It's a present evil age. So we tend to maybe kind of put on the rose-colored glasses and see things a little bit more rosy than they are. Um, and we have to remember, no, no, this is not, <laughs> this is not the, the world we're looking for, ultimately. Um, and that's what I want to kind of focus on this morning. So we're going to be looking at um, verses 36 through 51, um, Lord willing, if I can get through all this. Um, and this is how I'm going to summarize it. So we're going to break it down into three chunks, three sections. So verses 36 through 42, Jesus will be coming at an unexpected time. And then 43, verses 43 and 44, there's a parable, short parable of a thief and the head of the household. And then 45 through 51, another parable of the faithful and evil servant. So that's kind of how I'm breaking it down in three, three chunks or three movements. Um, why don't we pray and we'll look at this text more specifically. Lord, um, this is your word. Um, we didn't write it. We didn't come up with it. Lord, it's, it's from you. It's, it's, uh, it's from heaven, Lord, for us. And Lord, we want to certainly understand it so that we can live by it. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. Lord, you've not just given us um, only creation to go with. Lord, that doesn't give us any real information about how you, how you really are, Lord, in your, your um, salvation that you've accomplished and, and are, going, are going to finally accomplish at your second coming, Lord, for, for us who know you. But Lord, um, you have revealed yourself to us through your Son, um, you've spoken to us in your son in these last days. And so, Lord, um, help us to just uh, orient ourselves to where we live in history, Lord, and to, um, on the one hand, be incredibly thankful that we live in this time um, after you have come, Lord Jesus. Um, but we're still waiting um, for your second coming, so we don't want to be, um, I don't know, Lord, disoriented and uh, misread the times, Lord. We want to understand how we ought to live and to, to look to you, um, and be in a state of readiness when you come. So, Lord, teach us in your word this morning. Help us to be, um, be in that state that you find us uh, ready, blameless, at peace, waiting for you, Lord, eager. Um, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so why don't we read the text, um, chapter 24 of Matthew, starting in verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows... Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, <clears throat> before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying <clears throat> and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One t will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the, uh, of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, 
and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's a sobering passage. Obviously, anytime you're talking about the second coming, it should be a sobering topic, no doubt. Um, But we're going to just go through it piece by piece and um, see what the Lord has for us here. So the first thing right out of Jesus' mouth is that in contrast to all the stuff he said about Jerusalem and the temple and and abomination of desolation and Jerusalem Jerusalem being surrounded by armies and these things you can look for, he says, but of that day meaning his, his coming, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Um, the coming of Je- Jesus is a singular event, including both judgment and salvation. And we know this because of many texts in the scriptures, but even in the, the Old Testament, you know, the, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is that. It's a day of judgment and salvation. It depends on who you are uh, as to how that day will, will, how you will be received on that day, whether into you know, salvation or judgment. Um, so the day of the Lord is the, the Old Testament background for the day of the Lord Jesus, his coming, right? Um, and just like, uh, just like in the Old Testament, this is a day of judgment and salvation, and it's completely unknown to all except one, God the Father. Now, most of us here have read this probably numerous times, and we're just like, oh yeah, okay, Jesus doesn't know his day and hour, the day and hour of his return, but this is, a, this is a problem, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. You read this text, if you're, maybe if you remember when you became a believer, or you know, maybe you, this text struck you at some time along the way as you've read the scripture, and you're like, wait a minute. Christian, as Christians, we're saying Jesus is the God-man. He's God come in the flesh, the Son of God, and yet he doesn't know something, much less he doesn't know his, his, the day of his return, right? This is, a, this is an embarrassment, to Christians, is it not? I mean, shouldn't this, shouldn't be something that causes you to turn away from the Lord and hang up your hat and, oh no, you know, God, Jesus can't be God if he doesn't know the day of his coming. Well, that's what all the liberals want us to think, right? They use this um, to make a lot of hay and say, well, this is, this is striking at the core of Christian belief in the divinity of Christ. But does it? Well, this is not a new text. It's been there since the beginning, so Christians have dealt with this along the way over the past 2,000 years. So, no, it's not. I'll answer the question for all of you who are wondering. No, it's not something we need to uh, be ultimately concerned about, even if we don't have all the answers. Um, There are basically two ways this has been addressed in the history of the church, and one of them is this. So the first way of dealing with Jesus' ignorance of the day of his return is to say that Jesus was only limited in knowledge, the knowledge of his coming, during the days of his flesh. In other words, um, during his life on earth, Jesus Voluntarily, limit, uh, voluntarily limited his knowledge of this day. For what reason, I'm not sure, but you know, people speculate. But um, that he was limited then, but now, during his, you know, his glorification and his reign from the heavens, he is fully aware of that day, and uh, that's no longer the case. So that's the first way, that he's not now in ignorance of his, the day of his return, but he only was during his lifetime. Um, the second way of approaching this is to say that even now he doesn't know the day of his return because of the unique and in many ways mysterious father-son dynamic that exists as part of the Trinity, right? So 
John's gospel captures this for us in essence. Jesus and John says, I and the Father are one. And on the other hand, he also says, the Father is greater than I, <laughs> right? So how can he say both of these at the same time? Well, of course, theologians get a hold of this and have their theories and thoughts and so forth. And basically it comes down to this, that we don't want to flatten out the Godhead. The Trinity is a, a uh, it's relationship, right? The Father and Son, the Son and Father, the Holy Spirit, they're all in relation with one another. And we don't say things like, well, the, the Father died on the, on the cross or the Holy Spirit died on the cross and so forth and so on. They're different roles, just as in your relationship, you know, in your home, the father has a role, the, the mother has a role, the child has a role. These are all different dynamics, and that doesn't make the father or the mother or the child any less in value. They're just different roles. Um, so these are all analogies that fail at some point, but uh, the essence is that of this view is that uh, though the Godhead knows all, we're not saying God doesn't know everything. God knows everything, but the son doesn't know every single thing. He is limited, in, at least in this one point, even, even now. Um, it's difficult to choose between the two. The first feels, to be honest, a little bit more comfortable than the second because you're, you're saying, well, Jesus now knows everything, you know. But does it deal fairly with the text? That's the question, right? Um, after all, Jesus doesn't really qualify his statement in the text. He just says, I don't, I don't know the day, right? No one knows except the Father. Um, so... The short answer is that we can only suggest possibilities and cannot be conclusive or dogmatic. So that's my stance on the matter. I kind of lean more toward the second than the first, but again, maybe there's something to the first that has, has merit, but either way, I'm not gonna be dogmatic about it. If you want to be, be my guest, but Jesus says he just doesn't know. Um, either way, and here's kind of the main thing, <laughs> the statement he makes puts him outside the category of humans. So he says no one knows, and then it puts him outside the category of angels. He says, the angels don't know, only the Father. So if he's outside the category of draw the boundaries around human beings, well, I'm not one of those, and I'm not an angel, then what is Jesus? <laughs> Who is Jesus? He is one with the Father, right? He's in that category, that circle of, of Godhead, right? Um, he shares the unique identity of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And of course, we know this, we read it over and over again. Um, and furthermore, if all this is made up by someone, not the eyewitnesses, but someone later, why would you make this up, <laughs> right? It's a stupid thing to make up. If you're trying to sell a perspective, oh, Jesus is, the, is equal with God, he, he's God come in the flesh, and you turn around and write something like this, well, that would be kind of a stupid thing to do if you're just making stuff up, right? So it testifies, even though it's a hard thing for us in a kind of a problem text in a way, it testifies to the veracity, the truthfulness of the eyewitnesses. They didn't go expunge the record, you know, they didn't go whitewash things and cover things up and tweak things. Um, they left everything there because that's what Jesus said, right? Even if they didn't understand exactly what he meant at the time, and maybe we don't understand exactly what he means today, it's there in the record. There's no, uh, there's no hiding or, or no cover-ups. Um, so the import, important point here, though, is that Jesus wants his disciples to know that since the day and hour are shrouded in mystery, his coming will be unexpected. That's, that's the point, right? That's the basis for his, his subsequent teaching. Um, so Jesus goes on to say, and I, I'm going to kind of uh, give you my, kind of my translation of this. I don't like the NAS as much on this, but it, it says in verse 37, for just as the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus takes us back in history. Okay, now we're, we're looking at the time of Noah. Well, why? What's the, what's the point of comparison here? 
Verse 38, 39 and following, go on, to flesh, go on to flesh this out. Verse 38 goes on to tell us that the nature of the comparison between the days of Noah and the coming of the Son of Man is, <clears throat> excuse me, is between, uh, I'm sorry, the nature of the comparison between the days of Noah and the flood when compared to the last days before Jesus comes and the coming itself is that just as when the flood happened, it was business as usual. People were going about their lives. They were working jobs. They were marrying. They were marrying off their daughters. They were grinding at the millstone. They were doing all these things in the field. Just as that was going on, and then the flood came suddenly and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. It will be an unexpected event. It will be a total shocker, a surprise, um, in the sense of its timing, um, because no one can know. Again, if he doesn't know, he can't turn around and tell his disciples it will be such and such and such, you can look for these signs. Jesus says, I don't know, how could he give them signs, right? He doesn't. Um, the basic point is that life will be you know, business as usual. It's not like all of society will come to a halt as an indicator that the end is near. You know, you watch all these, these dystopian movies, apocalyptic movies, and it's like, you know, you know, wild dogs are roaming the streets and people are hunkered down in their, their you know, condos and people are fighting for valuable medical supplies and all this stuff. I mean, I like all those movies too, but Jesus is basically saying, if someone made a movie like that and said, yeah, this is what it's gonna be like before you come back, right? He'd be like, no, <laughs> it's not like that at all. It'll be just like, well, why don't you look around your life right now? It'll be like, what's going on now? People will be doing their, th- doing their thing, right? Not thinking about the end is drawing near. There will be no signs that, that the end is near. Um, Jesus casts no apocalyptic visions of dystopian societies as the setting for his return. Hence, he will come at a time when it seems the end is not near. And that is the point. That is the point. And he stresses this, um, just reading ahead, just briefly, verse 44, he says, for this reason, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So he even goes farther to say that it's, it's going to be at a time where you think, oh, he's nef- definitely not coming now. I mean, this wouldn't be the time when he comes, right? He said, that's when I'm going to come. <laughs> that's when it will happen. Um, so the basic idea is it's going to be unexpected. That's the, the gist of it. Um, and don't get me wrong. Society will be as sinful as ever, probably increasingly so based on other New Testament texts. But this is not in itself a useful gauge for determining Christ's return. As if you have, you know, like those um, thermometers that um, churches put up to raise money for a building, whatever, it's like, oh, once we get to this point, then we can build the, the fellowship hall or whatever. Like, there'll be a certain level of sin, then you can say, oh, we're getting higher, up, oh, up, oh, up, oh, bam, oh, Jesus must be coming back tomorrow, look at this level of sin we've got here. It's not gonna be like that. Uh, of course there will be sin, um, definitely. And worse and worse, and I think the comparison to the days of Noah points us in that direction too. But, Even so, there's no way you can say, yeah, we're at that threshold level of sin now where things are so bad that the end is certainly here and Jesus is coming back. That seems to be what Jesus is clearly saying here. Um, Just as people were caught by surprise in Noah's day, so it will be when Jesus comes back. Normal world events will grind on all the way up until his return. What does Jesus say here? He says, for in those days, verse 38, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand or recognize until the flood came and took them all away. That's a vivid image. I mean, get it in your mind. Noah's there with his family, hunkered down in the ark, waiting for the flood, and everybody else is sitting around 
just doing their thing, as if it's just business as usual, like I've been saying, you know? And Jesus says, it's that setting when the flood happened. The flood came and just took them all away. They were just doing their normal events of life, right? And he says it'll be just like that with his coming. Um, Then there will be two men in the field, one is taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one is taken, one is left. Um, Now this this text, if if you know anything about, you know, dispensationalism, and I won't get off too far into this because I think most of us, if not all of us, are not dispensational, at least anymore. Um, but if you know anything about the dispensational reading here or you know, the view that, that this is the rapture taking place here, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't really work out um, for a number of reasons. One is, in the context of the entire passage, Jesus is talking about his coming. I mean, the, the one taken, one left, it goes all the way back to his parables that he tells many of, including the dragnet and so forth, where fish are taken out of a net and sorted into baskets, one over here, one over there, uh, wheat and the tares and so forth. There are these clear distinctions where when Jesus comes, it's, everything is wrapped up at one time, and then, you know, the sons of the kingdom shine as stars, right? Everything is, is one, one event of separation, um, But secondly, look at the language used here. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one, or one, it's actually not will be, it's just one is taken, one is left. It's present tense. Um, The the big question that people ask here is, who who is identified here with, who should we identify as unbelievers and as believers? So the ones taken, are they the believers or the unbelievers, right? And vice versa. Um, Again, this is something I would not be dogmatic about because it doesn't clearly identify um, who is who here. But I think we can make a pretty good case based on the context that the ones taken are taken into judgment. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One is in the context of what Jesus says here about Noah in his days. Who were the ones taken away at the time of the flood? The sinners, right? The unbelievers, right? They're the ones taken away. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now this is a different Greek word here for uh, took them all away versus taken in verses 40 and 41. But nonetheless, that's not determinative uh, for, uh, for the interpretation. Um, the other factor here is that just reading the entire Bible in, in context, it seems like the whole notion of judgment is that, think about the, the flood. The flood comes as a flood of water to engulf the world and sort of, it's sort of an act of, re, of cleansing and recreation, isn't it? That sinners have, have destroyed the earth. They've, by their wickedness, they've polluted the earth. And you, you see this language in Leviticus that um, when, when, when people sin, they sin against God, yes, but they sin against the God who owns everything. And in some sense, their, their sin and our sin has this polluting quality to everything, right? And so um, the notion here with the flood is that the flood comes, it, it takes people away in judgment, it sweeps them away, and it also sort of cleanses everything in a way. And, and, and there's a, there's a uh, reset button that's pressed with Noah and his family, for sure. Um, similar language that is, is cited is in the book of Revelation. So um, Revelation 18, uh, eleven eighteen highlights that the final judgment will, quote, destroy those who destroy the earth. You hear that? Very similar to the flood and as you read through the entire Old Testament, destroy those who destroy the earth. So there's this idea that, um, that the earth belongs to God and his people and those who want to pollute it by their sin and destroy the earth by their, their wickedness, 
they're taken out of the picture. They're taken out of God's good creation. Um, maybe that's reading too much into it, but I think it fits the, the general tenor of things. Again, I'm not gonna be dogmatic. The overall point is this, that the wicked are caught off guard and, uh, and the righteous are caught off guard in the sense they don't, know the ti- they don't know the timing, but the wicked are taken into judgment because they are not ready for this coming. Nobody knows the time, that's the point. But not knowing the time is not an excuse for not knowing how you ought to be living your life in expectation for that time, uh, the return. Um, it's not as if Christians have special charts and graphs that allow us to be ready at the, the right moment, just right before he comes, whereas the wicked are surprised. Um, since the time can't be known by anyone, we must all always be ready. Um, and that's where, that's where Jesus goes next. He says, therefore, be on the alert, or literally, be awake. Therefore, be awake, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So this is, um, this is a, the first time we get a clear command in the passage, right? So up to this point, he's been kind of setting the stage for what he's going to say here. This is what he really wants to get to with his disciples and with us, which is the point that since we can't know the time, you know, I'm just going to use the time as, I think day and hour is just saying the time. It's not like, well, you can't know it's January 21st, you know, 2042, but you can know, you know, it's, it's within 10 years or something like that. You know? No, he's saying you can't know the time, the moment. You can't know. That's the whole thrust of it. But since you can't know, um, how, how you ought to act, how you ought to be, is awake, alert. So the, um, the, the word used to here, this may help you guys to kind of make it stick in your mind, is gregoreo. It's actually where the word Gregory, the, the name Gregory comes from. from. Gregoreo. And it, so it, it means to, to be awake or to be alert, vigilant, or to watch. So it's this notion of not just like pulling an all-nighter, like I'm going to stay up and just keep my eyes open and stay awake just because I can. It's to be awake with purpose. It's you're staying awake because you're watching. You're watching for something. You know, it's like a, you think about a, um, you know, a watchman on a wall, back to like Ezekiel. You know, he's, he's, standing there, he's standing there on the wall and he's staying awake, not because he's just doing it for fun. He likes to drink a bunch of energy drinks, you know. He's staying awake because he's watching for enemies. He's watching for anyone that could come and, and do harm to those within the city or whatever else he might be watching for. But that's the point of the, of the, the word uh, that's translated be alert. So be alert is a good translation because it captures that sense of, it's, yes, be awake, but it's, it's being alert to something, right? Something specific, in this case, the coming of, of Jesus. Um, so being alert doesn't mean, as I've been saying, trying to figure out how close we are to the second coming, since that's impossible, as Jesus already said. Being alert also doesn't mean stopping the affairs of everyday life and living in a bunker. <laughs> that would certainly be foolish after 2,000 years of waiting, over 2,000 years of waiting for Christ to come back, right? Um, it seems like the Thessalonian Christians sort of took this tack. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul has to tell them, you guys need to get back to work. You need, you know, it seems like they had this attitude of, Jesus must be coming at any time now, so we're just gonna kind of sit around and wait, sit on our hands, and when he co- why do we need to work, you know? I mean, <laughs> that would be stupid. Jesus is coming tomorrow. And Paul's like, no, 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 you need to, you need to continue your life. You need to go back to work. No one's gonna you know, give you money to, for food. You need to use your own hands and, and work at a job. Um, being alert or awake is the ultimate emergency preparedness. Um, for there is, you know, 
there's far more on the line with Jesus coming than emergency preparedness at work, like, oh, I'm afraid of getting shot, you know, armed intruder comes in, or oh, we need to, you know, uh, you know, get down in the hall because a tornado is going to come through the, our business or our school. I mean, those, those are all big deals, don't get me wrong, but this emergency preparedness is the ultimate <laughs> emergency preparedness, you know, because the second coming is, is it. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's the, the wrapping up of history. So this is ultimate. Um, you think about, you know, your alarm system in your, in your home. You know, you, you don't turn it on every second Tuesday, right? You, Jesus is going to talk about this in a moment. We'll get to that. But it's, it's a constant readiness. Um, so he, Jesus tells this parable, short little mini parable, about a, a thief and a, house, a homeowner. He says, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. So, yeah, I mean, it's not like, I don't know if you guys ever had anyone break into your home. I've never had anyone break into my house. I've had like a bike stolen and things like that growing up. But um, no one called me and said, oh, uh, hey, my name's John. I'm going to burglarize your home next Friday at about 7.30, maybe 8. If you want to maybe kind of get ready, try your best to ward me off. Jesus is like, no, that's that's not, how, that's not how burglary works. Or if it does, you've got a really, really bad thief on your hands, right? That's not how it works. Um, the reason burglary works is the element of surprise, right? And that's the point in this little parable is to say, again, it's not really a new point he's making, but it's just to say that this coming will be like a thief in the sense that the thief operates, his modus operandi is to operate on the notion of surprise, and he's gonna catch you unawares. And again, Jesus says, for this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Uh, if you have, again, I was saying, you know, about a home security system, you arm it every day or you arm it when you leave, uh, you know, uh, in, at nighttime, I'm assuming. You don't turn it on just every once in a while. Why not? Because the burglary can happen any time. The robber is not going to announce his, his, you know, his thievery. <laughs> um, likewise, our, as cheesy as it sounds, our spiritual security systems need to be always armed. Um, now, when I say armed, I don't mean, I don't want you to hear in a state of alarm, all right? There's a difference here. Jesus is not saying, he's not telling us all these things so we're in panic mode all the time. Actually, it's quite the contrary. He's wanting us to live in a settled, sober way, a settled, sober disposition of being alert, but not in a state of alarm or panic. And unfortunately, uh, I feel like a lot of the the prophecy hustling teachers, you know, who are always like, oh, Jesus come in because of this and that. And my mom just sent me an article about this, about, oh, there's these plagues over in Africa and this and that, and this must be, you know, signs of his coming. That stirs up alarm, doesn't it? I don't see anything in any of the teaching in the New Testament that tells us we should be in a state of panic or alarm or be in a state of, um, you know, just fear. Um, none of those things are part of what Jesus wants us to, to have in our kind of arsenal, you know? Um, we, should, we should be in a state of sobriety and have an attitude of sobriety and certainly being awake, being alert, but not being in a state of alarm. Um, so the thing that concerns me about the, the, the prophecy hustling teachers who are out there, and I guess they're, I don't know if they're, how many of them are still there. I know I grew up with listening to a lot of that stuff, reading the Left Behind books and so forth. But what I think it does 
unfortunately, is it makes people um, not ready <laughs> for the coming, right? Because you're so focused on sorting out all the details of how it's all gonna fit together that you miss the main point, which is to be ready. <laughs> That's where the focus needs to be laid. At the end of the day, I mean, okay, you sort out things as best you can with all of that discourse and fit things together. That's fine, I'm not against that. I've done that too. But that, that doesn't really, that's not ultimate. That's, that's, that's the primary thing. The ultimate thing is readiness, isn't it? The fact of the second coming is agreed upon by all real Christians, right? The fact that it's gonna happen. That's primary. But ultimate is the readiness aspect, right? And that's what Jesus is, is getting at here with his disciples and with us, is that it's not enough to just have your theological checkbox of, oh yes, there's gonna be a second coming, it's gonna go this way, in this order, yada, yada, yada and then you kind of just stop there and you forget about the actual readiness. <laughs> if you just stop there, which is I feel like what the prophecy hustlers encourage people to do, is just camp out there and get in all this mode of sorting things out, you never get to the main point, which is readiness. That is a tool of Satan, brothers and sisters. Maybe that sounds too strong to you, but I really feel like it is. I feel like that junk is satanic, all right? Because what it does is sideline people. And I know there are different aspects of how it's taught and so forth, but, um, I just see it being used to get people off script for what we should be, be doing. Um, anyways, I'll stop there with that. I don't want to get on a soapbox. Um, so Jesus continues on with another parable, the last parable, parable we're going to look at today, um, this morning, which is in verse 45. He tells this parable about a, a faithful slave and an evil slave. It doesn't seem to be two different slaves, but rather... Um, he looks at the slave in one perspective than the other, if the slave is faithful or then if the slave is unfaithful or evil. So I'll just read it again, it's very short. Who then is the faithful and wise or sensible or prudent slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. So we'll just stop there for a second. So there's the positive picture, right? There's this faithful slave, it's just three things. There's a commission of the slave, right? All right, this, faith, this person is de described as faithful and sensible. It's commissioned with a job. What is the job? The job is to take care of the household. So this will be a common image of a household slave who's, who is one of several other slaves, but he uh, stands out from the rest. You think about maybe Joseph in prison, right? He's, he's a prisoner just like everybody else, but he is noted for his special qualities, and he's set aside and set apart for um, a specific job to be over the, the prison. Um, likewise, with this slave in the parable, he is set apart and set aside for this specific job of giving the other slaves, his fellow slaves, their food at the proper time. And then Jesus secondly issues this blessing on the slave because when the master comes, he finds this person doing the job, right? Actually following through with what he's supposed to be doing. And the third aspect is reward, that, that Jesus says this slave will be put in charge of all the master's possessions, all of them. So you have a charge, you have a statement that he was faithful in the charge, and then a statement of, of, of a blessing and reward for following through. And then the flip side, the converse of that is this evil slave. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him, actually literally cut him in half and assign him a place with the hypocrites. <clears throat> in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So clearly this is a, a very sober parable 
that should make us all think. And I don't think it can be restricted to just leadership. Some throughout church history and even into modern times want to see this as just a parable that, that Jesus intends for his disciples and subsequent church leaders. The problem with that is, well, multiple, but the clearest solution to that particular viewpoint is to look at the, the same parable in Mark. Mark says, um, he tells the same parable with a few minor changes, and at the very end of the parable, Jesus says, what I say to you, and that's a plural, second person plural, you all, what I say to you all, you disciples, I say to all, be on the alert. So you see, Mark sees this as a parable that's intended by Jesus for all his disciples, all followers. So we can't just say it's for leaders only because of the nature of the parable. And, you know, this servant is called, this slave is called to dole out food to his fellow slaves and so forth. And those are the, the congregants of the churches and all that. That doesn't seem to be really the, the point. I'm sure there's a great application there that you can make work, but that's not really the point of the, of the parable. So what is the point of the parable? The point of the parable is that this being alert is more than just a mere attitude or frame of mind. It, um, it leads to action, does it not? So this, this faithful servant or slave doesn't just sit on his hands. As a matter of fact, in one of the other parables Jesus tells about talents given, which are not, when I was growing up, I thought it was like, oh, you can, you can play basketball really well. You can play the piano, you know. Uh, it's not talents like that, kids. It's, it's money, dollars, you know. We don't have dollar bills, but, you know, it's, it's an, an amount of money. The different talents that are giving, given to different people, different, different um, followers of Jesus or supposed followers and what they do with them. And the one who does nothing with his talent, you know, the thing that's given that he should have done something with, he is not just mildly chastised. He is considered to be an unbeliever because he did not, he did not serve his master. See, the thing we, have to, the thing we need to do here is, is just back up a second and think about the word Lord. We say Lord all the time, the Lord this, the Lord that, the Lord. What does that mean? It means master, right? It means master. It's, it's not a title that is, or I'm sorry, it's not just a mere name, the Lord. I mean, it does take on that, that flavor throughout the scriptures, but the Lord is is hakurios, in the Greek is the Lord. It's a, it's a title. He's the master. He's the one who's in charge, right? So when, when Jesus tells these parables <clears throat> about a, a master and slaves or, or a head of a house and, um, and so forth, all these different hierarchical um, parables, we're supposed to see who is the master. Jesus himself. He's the Lord, right? He's the one in charge. And the Lord has things that he wants us to be doing. Um, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Um, so the, the uh, ideal situation is for the master to return and find that the slave has been obeying his master's commands, has done his duty, and as a result, he will be rewarded and given more responsibility. That's part of the reward, right? Um, being put in charge of all the master's possessions. Um, what stands out is that being ready for the master's return involves discharging a duty or performing a job that was given, readiness is an attitude that leads to action. It's an attitude that leads to action, right? Um, so what does this mean for us? It means there's a danger in assuming that time is on our side because we're 2,000 years plus past Jesus saying this, and so we can easily adopt an attitude of, he's not coming anytime soon. I mean, it's been, it's been a while, right? I mean, we can be like in this parable, my master is not coming for a long time. That's a dangerous place to be according to the parable because that attitude is what leads to sort of a, uh, you lose a sense of the charge of your master, that he is just because he's away for a while 
doesn't mean he's not ever coming back. And you lose, lose that, that confidence that he is coming back. And in the parable, you begin to beat your fellow slaves and drink with, eat and drink with drunkards. So you begin to abuse and to um, you know, become self-indulgent. So we don't want to press every particular detail of a parable. That's not how you read parables. But the, the, the warning is still there, right? The warning is if you begin to assume that Jesus tarrying or you know, his delay, what seems like a delay to us, means he's not coming back, that's a dangerous attitude to have. And that's what Jesus is warning his disciples about and warning us about, that we have to maintain a, an attitude of being alert, right? Being awake. Um, in fact, we don't need to focus on the when question of his coming at all. This is only a distraction since we can't know the answer. Really, it's a complete, complete waste of time to worry about the when. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't worry about the when. Worry about the readiness. <laughs> That's what you need to worry about. Um, be, live as if he could come at any moment because you don't know when he's coming. Um, the fact that there is a reward um, or punishment for faithful or unfaithful behavior, behavior is obviously sobering. Um, if you're not sobered by that, then I don't know what it, I mean. <laughs> I don't know what will sober you up. This language is of particularly the, the punishment is intense. Cut him in half and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Um, a place with the hypocrites probably is used because throughout the gospel of Matthew and the gospels in general, hypocrites are considered to be the worst of the worst. It's like that guy's going, there with the hip, going over there with the hypocrites, you know. He's in that category of, of baddies, you know. Um, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, this, is a, this is a kind of text that it's not fun necessarily to read, is it? It's not something that you just sit down and want to have be your verse of the day, but it's absolutely essential, isn't it? Because it's true. True things are always essential, aren't they? It doesn't matter how we feel about them. It matters that they're true. And whether I feel great about reading it or not, it doesn't matter. What matters is that it is actually true. And Jesus puts this here not to get us all down in the dumps and to you know, have us turn into ourselves so that we're just focused on ourselves and our sin, but just to keep us in a state of being sharp and alert. Because if we don't, if we're not setting, if we're not calibrated correctly by the, the nature of his coming and what it will be, massive salvation but massive judgment at the same time, then how will we live in a state of being awake and alert, right? We have to feel the weight of both sides of the spectrum, of the weight, the weight of the reward that, that it's, there's this eternal weight of glory that God is working in us, right? But on the other hand, that to have your hands be slack and to fall to the side, to drift, to become sluggish is an incredibly dangerous place to be. And we've all been there in varying degrees, right? Probably some of you are there right now, for all I know. Um, it's an incredibly dangerous place to be because it's Satan's playground, you know? Um, Satan will use that, that, that period to do all kinds of things, um, to cast all kinds of doubts and on and on. So we have to be properly calibrated. Perspective, knowing that Jesus is coming is primary, but our attitude toward his coming is obviously ultimate. Um, I thought about just when I was a kid, I, I've had three bad situations with fire where Michelle gets tired of me telling these stories, but our house caught on fire twice and I fell into a fire once. But the second time, I remember very distinctly, I was sitting on, I don't know how old I was, maybe 10, 12, I'm not sure, but I was sitting on the sofa in my mom and dad's house and my friend was there with me. We were watching like cartoons after school. I think I was watching the show Mask. Anybody? Okay, great. All right. And, um, and then I remember hearing something weird behind me. 
And I looked back to the kitchen and there were huge flames coming up off the stove. I mean, like to the ceiling flames, you know? And so that, that, was, that was enough warning for me to, to run out of the house, right? Go tell my mom and she, had, she was cooking some um, French fries or something. And at the, at the time, you know, your phone was attached to the wall. So there were no even, there were no cordless phones at the time. So she went, went back in another room to answer a phone call and a fire broke out. So no French fries, unfortunately. Um, but the reason I say that is that, you know, it would have been ridiculous for me to become aware of the fire and then turn back around and keep watching Mask, right? Watching my cartoon. And that's what we do if we just stop short of saying, oh, we've got our eschatological scheme all sorted out. We know when the second coming's happening. We know some details about how it's going to go down. And then we stop right there and don't go into the readiness (laughs) aspect of things and really camp there in our minds. The readiness is what Jesus wants us to focus on. When we see that fire, we know we've got to do something, right? We've got to get out of the house in that case, or in the case of his coming, prepare. Live in an alert, awake fashion. Um, Jesus' main focus isn't on the fact of his coming, but the attitude that we should have, as I keep saying. Um, and what is that attitude? And I think this maybe sums it up. There's some more words that probably could be added, but the right attitude toward Jesus' coming is what? It's a mixture of eagerness, Expectation, right? Urgent action and alertness, being awake. So eagerness, we look forward to it, right? It's something that is, you know, Jesus says in, I think it's Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, to, to, to lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near, right? So that's it's something that we, as Christians, we should be able to eagerly embrace, you know, that we... we will not shrink back, won't fall back at his coming. Um, Urgent action, because we know that this master is our master, right? And he's commissioned us to live in a certain way. We're not here just for our own benefit, right? You know, we are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times does Paul call himself that? A bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And my fellow servants, Epaphroditus and da-da-da-da-da, Titus and all these people, they're just slaves. We're slaves, right? We have a commission from the Lord Jesus, and we'll be happy if we do these things that he's commissioned us to do, Jesus says. Um, so the right attitude, is a mixture, right attitude is a mixture of eagerness, urgent action, and alertness. We need all of these attitudes in balance because we don't want to shrink back in shame at his coming. This is from 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. Um, John writes, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So there's this attitude of, or this you know, concept of that if we're not maintaining a righteous lifestyle, then of course we're not going to have confidence when he comes because he's coming to judge the living and the dead, right? That's what he's coming to do. So if he's coming to judge the living and the dead, that includes us as well, then we have to live in a way that's blameless, beyond reproach, right? Pure at peace. Um, That's how we, you know, keep from shrinking back from his coming, from him at his coming. Um, Secondly, and this is a big danger for us, we don't want to become apathetic about the second coming, right? Um, And I've already said some about this, I won't belabor the point, but wow, it's such a tendency, you know, to become apathetic. Just, eh, it's probably not going to happen, mainly because it's been such a long time since Jesus has said these things, and we just feel like it's maybe not going to happen. That apathetic attitude 
is the world's perspective. Um, Peter over in 2 Peter um, chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, I won't read the whole thing, but he, he alludes to this attitude of some, who he calls mockers, who have this attitude that, yeah, Jesus, he's not, he's not coming. It's been such a long time. There's no way he would come now. So Peter writes, flip over there. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their, after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, he continu- uh, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present, <clears throat> the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men, etc. Where do you think Peter got this from? Does it not sound exactly like what Jesus said in Olivet Discourse? Same thing, going back to the days of Noah. Um, and Peter is saying, yeah, there are going to be some who say, there are some who say, he's not coming. Even in Peter's own day, you know, because there was this expectation that maybe Jesus would come in their own lifetime, you know. And Jesus, in his, his parables and his teaching, Olivet, Olivet Discourse, I think one of the things he's doing is, that you see is he's trying to tell them, yeah, you, you can't know the day or the hour, but I'm going to tell you this. I do know this much. It's, it's not going to be any time. You need to be prepared for a delay is what he's basically saying. You need to be prepared for a delay because it may not happen in your lifetime. Um, and so Peter is alluding to that as well. Um, and the, the thing that Peter focuses on here in verse 11 is saying, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know theologically right now, but I want us to try to feel the weight of that. Do we really live in that way? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? That's the question for us, right? If everything, is, if everything has an expiration date, right? Think of the picture of the earth with a big expiration date written on it. We don't know what that date is, but it's there. If everything's to be destroyed, what really counts? What really matters? It really puts things in perspective, doesn't it? When you get in some little petty argument with your spouse and you think, this earth is gonna be destroyed. There's a coming day of judgment. What am I doing? This is stupid, you know? We're arguing about Doritos or something, you know? It's dumb, you argue about dumb things, right? It's the dumb little arguments that, that cause problems in marriage. It's not, you would think you would argue about big things. That's usually not the way it goes. Um, so anyways, we don't want the world's perspective on the coming, that we just become apathetic. Oh, he's not really coming. We wouldn't say that, would we? We would never say, yeah, oh, we're apathetic. He's not coming anytime soon. But we can, we can inculcate that, that attitude. We can sort of just adopt it over time. Um, and we don't want to do that. We have to ward against that. Um, a couple more things, we'll wrap it up. We want the rewards that come with his presence, right? Because he's coming with reward. It's, it's the day of salvation. It's redemption, right? He's coming, I mean, it's, it's captured no better than in 2 Thessalonians. Let me just flip over there quickly. 2 Thessalonians chapter one. Um, so the Thessalonian church had been suffering some level of persecution. Um, and uh, Paul writes, 
For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. And he goes on. So there are two things happening on that same day, right? This is not a rapture and second coming. This is the second coming. Two things happening. Judgment and relief for the saints and glorification for the saints. And us, as he says, being mar- to be uh, marveling at the coming of, of the Lord, right? He's going to come in glory and majesty and might. And what we, I think, all want to do on that day is be in a, in a state where we can rightly marvel at his coming, right? Um, the second coming is, let's put it this way, is the, the finish line of the Christian life. And so the second coming makes the demands of discipleship worth it. This is another reason we have to stay oriented and alert to the fact of the second coming. And it's, it's like this. It's like, you know, you, you, you train everything to run this massive, say, marathon, and then you stop like 20 feet short of the finish line because you're just tired of running. Why would a person do that? You would only do that if you thought maybe the marathon was just not a marathon. It was going on and on and on and on and on and on, and you never would get to a finish line. The second coming is that finish line, right? So we have to keep that in front of us to fix our gaze on Jesus, <laughs> the author and perfecter of our faith, because he knows what it's like. He's been through, he's been through way more than you, have I, you and I have been through, right? But it was for the sake of what? The glory that was to follow, right? He despised the shame because there was glory coming, right? So when we're suffering and we're, we're feeling like we're just in the dregs of life, we have to remember the second coming because the second coming is that day of redemption. It's the day of salvation. We lift up our heads. It's drawing near, right? Um, and so it makes everything totally worth it. If there wasn't an eternal weight of glory at stake, then as Paul says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? Just total hedonism. Just do what you want to do, which is what most people do anyways, right? But as Christians, we should do the same if there is no second coming, right? But if there is a second coming, as Paul also says at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, then your labor in the Lord, brothers, is not in vain, right? The labor is not in vain. Labor, back to the parable here. Something to do, right? So we're gonna wrap it up here. It's 1229. Um, I'm just gonna read this text because I think it ch- captures the, the essence of what um, we need to have in our heads as we leave. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 11. So I'll just say one brief comment before I read it. So Paul says that um, in 1 Thessalonians that we, in some sense, are not caught by surprise like a thief. By that, he doesn't mean that because we know the day. He means because we are living in such a way that we won't be caught off guard. We're ready for his coming in the sense that he, you know, we'll, we'll, we won't shrink back from him and his coming. So Paul says, but since we are of the day, uh, verse, verses 8 through 11 of chapter 5, But since we are of the day, that's who we are, we're of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. And that's what we need to be doing, brothers and sisters. 
the basis of that text, the basis of our forgiveness of sins, the, the glory that's coming our way. Um, we need to be building up one another, encouraging one another, as we've all, all, already been doing. Continue on. So why don't we pray, and uh, we'll be done for this morning. Lord, we um, are always just glad to get oriented towards your word. Uh, Father, we pray that you would make it stick in our hearts. We can't ultimately do that ourselves. We can attend to it. We can pray. We can ask you, Lord, to, um, to do these things, Lord, but we can't make the word shine or make the word stick. We ask you to do that for us. Help us to live lives worthy of your gospel. Um, help us to live in such a way that we are not shrinking back in shame at your coming or, um, Lord, um, being like the world who is uh, just living in an apathetic way now as if you aren't going to come. Lord, help us to live uh, in a way that's alert, eager uh, for your coming and um, just uh, being at work now, Lord, working while it's day because night is coming when no man can work. Uh, Lord, we uh, know that that day of judgment will be the finish line for history and Lord, we can't, uh, we can't serve you anymore in the way that we can now at that point. So Lord, uh, make us excited to be called your slaves and um, to be willing to suffer for the name and uh, to be um, seeking the glory that comes from uh, the only God. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.